Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio. Welcome modulation. to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Many of us who enjoy wandering, skiing, and fishing the Madison area's frozen Yahara lakes have been on the edge of our seats for weeks this winter, but lakes Mendota and Monona officially froze on January 15th. This was the third latest seasonal freeze over for Lake Mendota in 170 years. But warmer temperatures and rain this week may make that ice thickness a fluid situation. Bad pun intended. I'm not normally much of a punter, but I couldn't resist that one. The Department of Natural Resources, I have to remind folks, though, recommends waiting until there are at least four inches of ice to walk out on the lakes. When those lakes are safe to walk on, they become the region's largest parks. To celebrate the community's ties to the lakes in winter, the Clean Lakes Alliance organizes the annual Frozen Assets Festival on Lake Mendota. Since 2012, Frozen Assets has raised more than $1 million for lake improvement projects, educational programs, and water quality monitoring. This year's free festival will take place on the weekend of February 3rd and 4th at and adjacent to the Edgewater Hotel, conditions permitting, of course. To talk about those conditions and the Frozen Assets Festival and the Yahara Lakes in winter, I'm joined today by two local guests. I have uh, with us Adam Soderston, Marketing and Communications Director of Clean Lakes Alliance, a nonprofit organization devoted to improving the water quality of the lakes, streams, and wetlands of the Ahara River watershed. Welcome, Adam. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks for being with us. And we also have with us Dr. Tyler Butts, a postdoctoral researcher at the UW-Madison Center for Limnology. His current research focus is investigating the consequences of successive species invasions in Lake Mendota and Lake Monona. Welcome, Tyler. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Again, good to have you with us. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. I know many of you have experiences and questions and observations about the lakes to share. If you have a question for my guests about the Ahara Lakes in winter, the Frozen Assets Festival, research about water quality, efforts to improve the lake's water quality, or you just have a story about the lakes in winter you'd like to share, we'd love to hear it. Please do give us a call at 608 256 2001 extension 9. Again, that's 608-256-2001, extension 9, to talk about the Yahara Lakes. Well, Tyler, we'll start with you today. Uh, as the scientist in the room, what can you tell us about the state of the ice on the lakes right now? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, January 15th was uh, the third latest freeze date in the record. Uh, though over the last 30 years, January freeze dates are getting a lot more common. Uh, about 16 of the last 30 winters have seen January freeze dates. Uh, though eight of those 30 years were freeze dates earlier than December 20th, which is the the mean of our our data set of how long we've been tracking ice on and ice off in Mendota, Minnesota. And that's 170 years that those records go back? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the earliest being 1852 is when okay. we started. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's just when ice actually covers the lake. That says nothing about ice depth, right? That's correct. Yeah. Ice depth is is variable. And with climate change, lake ice is getting a lot less reliable. Um, so always want to be careful out there um, and always check the ice before engaging in any ice activities. Uh, like you said, the, that four uh, inch mark is a good good bet and keep track of reports from the Wisconsin DNR um, climatology office. Is there a specific resource and, and Adam, if you want to jump in about that too, or if Tyler, if you're aware of a specific resource where people can go for that uh, up-to-date ice depth. I don't, the DNR, I don't know that they ever really post anything. And I've talked to the sheriff too, because the lakes are so dynamic yeah. and there's that they say it's five inches or seven inches, but then you get somewhere near an outfall right. or a stream and it, it's not consistent. So they usually don't report ice depth. But, uh, you know, to add on to um, what Tyler was saying, I think one of the interesting things is that the Wisconsin State Climatology Office, uh, who makes the call here on ice on, ice off, 
um, relies on the same methods that they've been using for 170 years. So it is still a visual point to point. They drive around the lake and look at it. So there's no drones, there's no satellites, there's, there's nothing um, digital is a very analog process, which I think is, is interesting because, you know, maybe the, the ice is on, but you know, if you were from an elevated point, you could see, but you can't, um, just by going from these point to point. And and the one that got the story we love to tell is that they, the old rumor was if you could row a boat between picnic point and maple bluff to deliver a case of beer, the ice was off. If you couldn't deliver the case of beer, the ice was on, which is just the most Wisconsin way ever to determine ice on, ice off on a lake. And that has more or less persisted, as you say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, it's it's interesting how, how they still do it. And and I think that that's, um, you know, in a, in a fast paced digital world we live in, it is kind of um, rewarding to see that the, that the analog methods are still relied upon. And I, you know, Tyler can probably speak more to this than I can, but it does keep the data a little more consistent that we know it's kind of the same methods that have been used and we're, we're not changing our methodology at this point. That's, that's right. It is super important to keep that record consistent so we can compare um, to the past with a reliable estimate of how things are changing. You know, one of the tools that we use as limnologists, which if listeners are unfamiliar with that word, is the study of inland lakes. So if you're ever on the Lakeshore Path and watch, walk past the Center for Limnology, that's, that's what we're doing there. Um, but we use this uh, black and white disc called a secchi uh, disc that we lower into the water. And when it disappears, that is the, the depth of how far down we can see into the lake which is a very low tech method. Obviously there's more advanced light meters and um, other sensors available today, but those secchi depth measurements can go back, you know, over a hundred years. So we can really get a sense of the, the long-term changes in the lake. Yeah. So in a sense, also relying on those human powers of observation that all of us who make a call about walking out on the lake to fish or ski mm -hmm. or whatever in the winter are also using. But again, it helps, as you say, to have uh, a record of knowledge when you're making those observations and talk to other people and get a, a sense of that. And I know, Adam, you said you've been out before the show. You said you've been out on Lake Monona. Uh, tell us about what you observed. Yeah, I've been out on, on Mendota a couple oh, sorry. times. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's so um, our offices overlook Lake Mendota as as the Center for Limnology, and ours are provided in kind, which is fantastic as a nonprofit. Um, but so we do have a large frozen assets festival coming up, and so um, you know you, you start. There's a big piece of ice just fell off the roof of the building. <laughs> it's warming <laughs> it's up. It's melting so, today. Yes. Yeah, I know, which isn't great. So you kind of like to you know find out where we're getting. Um, where the ice thickness is. And, and the good news is, is we're still building. And so last Friday or four days ago, I went out and it was at around four and a half inches. Um, I went out today and it was closer to seven inches, um, which is a good, we're moving in the right direction. Um, you know, now the things that you start to get concerned about are, are heat, warmth up, uh, rain, which you never like to see in January or February. And then the interesting one that, that actually affects the ice thickness is snow. And so if we get too much snow on top of the ice, it's like putting a nice warm blanket on and, and you're not going to be able to build it as much. And so um, the forecast is a little bit unpredictable for what we're going to get tonight, whether that's a snow rain mix and how much do we get. And so um, we will just continue to go out there and drill to make sure that we feel comfortable putting people on the ice for a, a community festival. And that is uh, February 3rd and 4th, correct? Yep, at yep. the Edgewater. And and the good news is if we don't have ice that we feel comfortable with putting people out on, um, we will still be at the Edgewater property. Uh -huh. So Frozen Assets as a community-wide festival will still go on. Our friends from the Center for Limnology will still be there. They'll just be on shore instead of on the lake. Um, and so, you know, I'm is a, a glass half full or a lake half froze uh, <laughs> methodology here. I'm, I'm confident we're getting toward the right direction. It's just this next week of weather, next two weeks of weather that we just don't know how it's going to react, how the ice is going to react to that. Uh -huh. And do you have a baseline level amount of ice that you have to have to have that many people out there? It's a, it's a great question. And, and, you know, as an organization um, <clears throat> for our, our 5k, which is we'll put hundreds of people in maybe a smaller area. Um, we like to see eight inches. That's kind of where we like to, start to have the conversation, you know, the, as I think we talked about at the top of the hour, the DNR will never declare anything safe ice, but they have guidelines. And so the four inches is when you can start to walk on it as a person. And the five to six is maybe when you can take your snowmobile or your ATV out there. 
you get from eight to 12 is like a lighter car and then 12 on is, is maybe a heavier truck. And so, you know, we're to the point to where it's safe ish to walk on it, um, by the guideline standards. But when you start to compact people in a tight area, like we do to start the 5k, like see it a little thicker than that four inches. So closer to eight. So you're kind of getting to that light car if you're packing a number of people in there. And so, um, we're going to do everything we can to move things forward. If we have to move away from the 5k, but still have other people that are scattered about on the lake, we can probably do that. But you know, there's everything's on the table at this point and, and we just have to wait on, on, on nature to take its course over the next two weeks. That's uh, Adam Sodderston, marketing and communications director with the clean lakes Alliance. And we're joined also by Dr. Tyler Butts, postdoctoral researcher at the UW Madison center for limnology today here on a public affair at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. We're talking about the Ahara lakes in winter, the upcoming frozen assets festival, the ecology of the Ahara lakes and water quality in the Ahara lakes. If you have a question or story you would like to share and join in the conversation, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, while we're still on the subject of the festival, let's talk a little bit more about that, and then we'll move into some of the broader uh, issues, ecological issues happening with the lakes these days. Um, so, Adam, tell us, first of all, kind of the history and goals of the Frozen Assets Festival, and then we'll go into what it's like to be out there at this festival, and we'll have to, you join us, Tyler, with the Center for Limnology's role. So we have these five these five large lakes in, in Greater Madison, and, and a lot of us think of them as, as these summer entities. And so when Clean Lakes Alliance started in 2010, we tried to sort of shift that mentality to say, let's think of the lakes year-round, because our protection of them and, and the actions we take really are important to be thinking about year round. And so, in the, you know, the lakes are such a large community asset and in the winter there are our frozen asset. And so that's kind of <clears throat> how this, this whole thing was born. Um, you know, over the course of the festival, we've raised um, through sponsorships and donations, you know, over a million dollars for the lakes. And that's gone right back into, <clears throat> excuse me, community improvement um, projects or, or community-wide education or our volunteer monitoring. So we've used that money to work right here locally. The fun part about the lakes is when they freeze, they're really our largest park. It's this huge unexplored area for a lot of people. And I, I as I said at their office, I've been watching somebody ice skate out here because there's no snow, so they've been ice skating the whole lake. Um, you know, and so even if you don't have skates or skis or snowshoes, you can just walk. You can walk on the lake, you can touch Maple Bluff, which is, you know, kind of fun, just these very different things. And so Frozen Assets gives people the opportunity to do this. You can try snowshoeing for free. We'll have these large show kites that will fly over the lake. There's actually skydivers from the Seven Hills Skydiving Club coming and landing right on the lake, which is really exciting. Um, obviously, the Center for Limnology and our friends at UW Physics are there really explaining the science behind the ice, which is just fascinating to take the time and listen to the, the smart folks that uh, can explain the ice to you. Um, and so... It's just a great way, I think, for people that maybe have a little bit of cabin fever in the winter to get out, to see something fun, but to learn a little bit too and learn that how important these lakes are to, to our community um, and, and to the, the, maybe the greater ecology of, of where we live. Absolutely. And we'll go into a little more detail there about what's happening during the festival in a minute, but we have a caller on the line. Doug, welcome to A Public Affair. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Just uh, one question. Go, go right ahead, Doug. Yeah, so I'm uh, calling to uh, understand, see if you have any data about the lakes when the ice is gone, but I've um, noticed and measured the pH of ocean waters changing the last 40 years from 8.13 to 8.07 and wondered if you have any data on the change in the pH of the lakes around here. That's interesting. So I know there's a correlation with the pH in the oceans in terms of how much carbon they're absorbing. Is there a similar uh, effect happening in inland lakes, Tyler? Can you speak to that? Yeah, well, I can definitely speak that we, we have been measuring pH uh, and through we, that's public data as well. So through the North Temperate Lakes Long Term Ecological Research Program, which uh, the Center for Limnology uh, works on, has been collecting data on, on Madison uh, lakes, Mendota, Monona, uh, Fish, and Wingra uh, for, since 1995. Uh, so we've been tracking pH there. 
Um, I, off the top of my head, I can't speak to uh, what the pH levels have been looking like over time, but uh, for sure, you know, the changes in carbon dioxide affecting the um, bicarbonate in the uh, in the water stuff is going to have effect on that that pH. Um, the ocean is obviously a lot bigger uh, water body, and there's a lot more variability in carbon sources and fluxes into terrestrial areas uh, into lakes. So, um, yeah, but that that our that pH data is available through the um, North Trumpet Lakes data set. Uh, is that sort of just to follow up and thank you for the question, Doug, a really interesting question. Is there concern among people studying lakes about those changing pH levels, Tyler? Is that something you could speak to? Um, I think it's with freshwater lakes, a lot of the um, more active concerns are things with uh, water quality in uh -huh. terms of nutrient levels and, and eutrophication that we see, particularly in Mendota uh, and Monona, but that that is definitely an issue. There's uh, this thing called uh, brownification, where lakes are becoming more brown as more terrestrial inputs of carbon go into our lakes and start changing the water color. We see a lot of that, um, particularly in our uh, Northwoods lakes, uh, but all, all elsewhere um, around the world where they have lots of um, terrestrial inputs and those lakes are becoming a little bit more brown. Yeah. Thanks again for the question, um, Doug. And Tyler, I think we'll stick with you for a minute and go back to the Frozen Assets Festival. So you, along with your colleagues at uh, the Center for Limnology, uh, have been out there on the ice in past years at Frozen Assets. I know my family mm -hmm. and I have always enjoyed talking with the scientists there, and uh, my kids enjoy putting different measuring devices down through the hole and see what's going on. Yep. Tell us about the center's role at the festival and uh, what you feel like is valuable about that presence there yeah so we have we'll have a little booth there um we'll we'll have a lot of the gear that we use for winter sampling um you'll be able to lower down a secchi disc uh into a hole in the ice we'll also be able to look at some of the um critters that live under the water obviously fish are um, of, of large interest to folks but there's also lots of microscopic organisms that are moving around under the lake um, so we'll um, pull some of those and show them under the microscopes that we have out there uh, and talk a little bit about the, some of the biology going on in the lakes, as well as a lot of the sort of uh, winter limnology that we've been doing in recent years, uh, particularly with Dr. Hilary Dugan and her lab's work on uh, changes in, in lake ice and, and conditions under the ice. Before we get into that winter limnology, uh, Adam, is there anything you want to add about the festival and, and what's happening there on the ice or at the Edgewater that people should know about? Yeah, actually, that um, Tyler said something, too, that, that, that triggered uh, something that I should mention. So uh, Dr. Uh, Hillary Dugan is actually going to be speaking. So Frozen Assets is, is more like a nine to ten day okay. thing. So we're kicking off with a fundraiser event this Saturday. And then there's events at the Edgewater kind of throughout the week, different kinds of events ending with this festival. Um, and so Dr. Hillary Dugan is going to be speaking at our monthly science talk, which will be Monday at 4 p.m., I believe, at the Edgewater, and it's titled What's Under the Ice. And it's going to be a fascinating talk about exactly what's under the ice. Um, and, and she spoke, spoke to our group before, um, and it's, it's really interesting. So it's open to the public, um, and, and we do these talks once a month uh, where we bring in either somebody from Center for Limnology or the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources or um, somebody else lake-related. And it's a, we can kind of dive into specific topics. And so she will be talking about that, which will be really interesting. Um, you know, the other thing about frozen assets too, that we do have that's, that's fun is that, um, you know, there's the stuff that happens on the ice, but then there's just this kind of winter activity. So there'll be a figure skating demonstration from a local figure skating company. Um, there's a great kid zone where they can watch movies and do arts and crafts and, and all sorts of stuff. And so, we want people to get onto the lake and experience all those things, but we also recognize that it is winter in Wisconsin and, and just getting families out, there has to be something that, that kind of gets the kids involved. And so, you know, it's really kind of morphed into this um, thing where you can come out and try just a bunch of different things. There's a, a slap shot uh, thing that uh, the Wisconsin uh, or that Madison Capitals uh, bring to us. So, so just a, just a whole variety of things, something for, for everybody, really. And I have to say, there is a sort of unique community feeling uh, and eventfulness about uh, having so many people gathered out on the ice, especially if it's a bright, sunny day, uh, and yeah. you can see and hear it from far, far away, you know, approaching really the festival. 
interesting how many people have either grown up in greater Madison or who have grown up in the Midwest and have actually never ventured out onto a frozen lake. And so um, this gives them an opportunity maybe to go out and try, you know, maybe you do like snowshoeing and you didn't even know it. Um, so there's these things that you get to try, but I think it's really neat to walk out a couple hundred yards and then look back at the city. And it's a, you know, if you've never been on a boat on the lake and, and it just gives you an opportunity to get a different vantage point of our city um, and, and how special it really is in Madison that we live on this, this isthmus, which is just a very unique setting um, for a, a large city, for a capital city at that. And so, you know, just, just that opportunity, I think is, is really fun. And, and if people don't make it the frozen assets, um, find another time to get out onto the lake and, and enjoy it because there truly are, um, you know, the, the sort of the crown jewel in, in, in what everything that Greater Madison has to offer. Absolutely. I can, I can speak to also the quiet that you experience. If, it, if you're not out there on a day where the festival is happening, that you, if you get uh, a little ways out onto the lakes and that change perspective, and it doesn't take, you don't have to move very far to have a very different perspective on the city, as you said. Get out there right around sunrise or a little after, and Tyler, I'm sure, has experienced this, and, and all ice cracks. It's just it's, it's physics of it. And, and every once in a while, you'll hear a large boom as the ice cracks, and it, it, it can make your stomach jump a little bit. Uh, but but it is, if you're out there and experience it, it is pretty neat to hear that, that large crack that will go through the ice as it expands. Yeah, it's a unique experience of, of natural forces, right? Tell us a little bit more about what's going on there, Tyler, with those cracks. I know you're not a physicist per se, but any, <laughs> you've, I'm sure, as Adam said, you've had experience with the changing ice dynamics. What's what's happening? Yeah, so as as Adam said, you know, that ice is expanding or shrinking or growing and, and moving around uh, on top of that water. Uh, and so there's going to be cracks or it'll be, you know, changes in the topography of the ice where there'll be these um, sort of like almost hill shaped uh, things, or it could be um, depressions or, or whatnot in the lake. And, you know, as we said, lake ice is rarely uniform across a lake. So um, it can get thicker, it can get thinner. Um, so if you are going out there, always, you know, be careful, pay attention to your surroundings. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is a really cool aspect to, to Madison as a city to have these incredible um, resources nearby us. Uh, and also a really common aspect of, of lakes in general. Uh, you know, all, almost all of the world's lakes periodically freeze. Um, and we're discovering in more recent years that there is a lot going on underneath the ice in terms of um, the biology and chemistry and all these things that, you know, Previously, we thought they were more dormant, but in recent years, limnologists across the world are really recognizing the importance of what's going on underneath that ice uh, during the winter months. Yeah, so go ahead and tell us a little bit more, Tyler, about that uh, winter lake ecology research that's going on there at the Center for Limnology. Some highlights or things that you think people would really like to know about. Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll first start off by saying that I uh, am not the the winter limnologist doing a lot of these things. Um, a lot of that's led by uh, Dr. Hilary Dugan out of the Center for Limnology and her lab group, uh, as well as many grad students, uh, Adriana Gorski, Eli Socha, um, Lizzie Emsch. They all do a lot of great work on winter ice and all the dynamics therein. Um, but I can speak to some of the things that we've, we've been learning at, at the center. Um, and in fact, we're going to be breaking ground soon on a winter limnology laboratory up in our northern home uh, at Trout Lake Station uh, up in the Northwoods. And so we're going to be continuing this uh, drive for understanding uh, winters and, and what it's doing to our lakes. Um, but, you know, it, it may seem that all that snow cover on our lakes might make the, the lakes completely a dark abyss. Um, but light can still enter our lakes. Uh, photosynthesis can happen and things can grow, albeit a lot slower. Um, and one of the things that we've been learning a lot recently is about greenhouse gases, um, like things like methane, carbon dioxide, they're naturally produced and can build up under the ice. And when that ice starts breaking, um, it can release these large bursts of greenhouse gas. And so kind of understanding those dynamics in our lakes has been a um, research priority and sort of looking at how do these changes in ice cover affect what the uh, summer looks like and everything that's happening in the winter is really setting the stage for what that summer season is going to um, look like and how we're going to experience it 
And through climate change, we've lost about a month's worth of ice cover with lakes freezing later and thawing earlier. Um, as we've said, the January 15th freeze date is much, much later than the median of uh, December 20th, though, again, that's like 170 plus year, year data set. Um, and so through really these last 30 years, January freeze dates are becoming much more common. But there is a lot of biology and chemistry going on under the ice that is sort of setting the stage for potentially how big a cyanobacteria bloom might be in the spring or the later in the summer. Um, and what the nutrients held over from the previous summer um, might look like. So let me see if I paraphrase that correctly here, Tyler. What you're saying essentially is that the changing uh, ice length of ice cover in response to the warming climate doesn't just have to do with ice or it doesn't just affect ice. Uh, it can affect the seasonal, biological, ecological activity of the lake all year round, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, even uh, we've seen with uh, the these sort of earlier thaw dates, that's having an effect on what species of phytoplankton. So all the all the green that we see in our lakes, what species are around, how much they're there in the early in the summer, which provide food for both fish as well as um, things that fish eat. So it it really is the sort of inter interconnected uh, puzzle. That we're trying to, to piece together and understanding the lakes in winter is a, is a huge part of that. That's postdoctoral researcher at the UW-Madison Center for Limnology, Tyler Butts, here on A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and Tyler and I are also talking today with Adam Soderston, Marketing Communications Director at the Clean Lakes Alliance. If you have a question for Tyler and Adam about the Hara Lakes in winter, the upcoming Frozen Assets Festival put on by Clean Lakes Alliance, or research about water quality and efforts to improve the lake's water quality, or you just want to share a story about your experiences of the Ahara Lakes in winter, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to hear from you and have you join this conversation about this really central part of our geography and our communities here in the Madison and South Central Wisconsin area. Let's stay on the, the ecological themes right now and uh, bring it back to you, Adam, to have you. We just heard a little bit about winter ecology and some, some ecological dynamics happening in the lakes. Let's talk about some of the priorities of the work at Clean Lakes Alliance right now and what issues in, in particular um, the Clean Lakes Alliance is working on and concerned about. Well, I think getting getting people involved and just knowledgeable in how they can help is, is probably one of the most important things. And um, the good news is we live in a, a greater community where people want to help and do the right thing. Um, and I think, you you know, a, a great historical example of that is uh, recycling. So Madison was was actually kind of at the forefront of recycling 40 years ago. Um, and, and, and it took this sort of groundswell effort of people taking their newspapers one place and their aluminum and tin one place and their glass one place. And, and you know, we were one of the early adopters as a community of, of curbside recycling pickup. And, and it happened because neighbors spoke to neighbors and wanted to know why they were sorting out their trash in this weird way. Um, and, and, and then it worked, right? So it was sort of this groundswell effort, not, not a top-down mandate, but a, from the bottom up. And, and we kind of see that same way with um, with lake ecology and how we can all help as a community. And so, um, you know, one of the things uh, Tyler talked about, too, was, was you know, the things that the actions that we happen in the winter kind of set the stage for the summer and, and maybe some of the other uh, things we do in the summer. So runoff is a huge issue for these huge urban lakes. And so where the, you know, the adage used to be, I need to move the water as fast as I can off my property. Now we want you to hold that water. Okay, because it's not going to just run over bare soil and take that that phosphorus nutrient into the lake that's going to that's going to create the cyanobacteria bloom. And so, you know, there's just simple things like redirecting the downspout onto the onto the grass or, you know, rain barrels, which are really most hardware stores sell them. Rain gardens are a great way to control that runoff. And in the fall, and this seems odd, is raking leaves out of the street. Leaves are a huge source of urban phosphorus. Most of our storm sewers in Madison lead directly to the lakes. And so the stormwater runs through that leaf. It takes the phosphorus with it like a tea bag, puts it right into the storm sewer that hits the outfall. And so 
neighbors are raking leaves out of the streets and other neighbors are going to them. Why are you raking the leaves when they're explaining this? So it's the same as recycling. It's that groundswell effort. And we've seen starting to see a shift in the way people are, are, are behaving on, on property. And, and I think that that's very rewarding because I think it shows that, um, you know, we as a community recognize these lakes are important and, and we want to, we are willing to change our actions to make sure that they stay um, healthy for years to come. I want to talk a little bit more about those uh, sort of ground up efforts, um, but we have another caller on the line who wants to share some uh, lake stories. I believe we have uh, DJ Anker, DJ Spin Cycle on the line. Welcome to a public affair. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, uh, you know it uh, brought back fond memories. I was a project assistant. Uh, uh, at the Center for Limnology, uh, well, I guess uh, 23 years ago, and uh, working under Dr. Steve Carpenter, and I have fond memories of walking uh, onto the lake, the frozen lake, in the middle of uh, winter, and having you know a sandwich uh, while hearing the cracking ice, and uh, yeah, I just thought I'd. Uh, call in and share a fond memory and uh, wonderful times I spent uh, at that uh, Center for Limnology. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you you for sharing that. Can can I follow up with a question for you? Um, Do you you have any memories of your research or what people were learning then that, uh, you know, you still think about in relation to the lakes? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I was involved with this uh, this uh, uh, National Science Foundation NSF uh, project called the LTER Long Term Ecological Research uh, Project, which uh, involved just uh, setting up a bunch of buoys and uh, sensors and all sorts of instruments across the lakes. You know, uh, we are we are lucky. Uh, our lakes are some of the most uh, researched lakes uh, with uh, some of the you know, deepest uh, or oldest uh, kind of data sets uh, available and just kind of amplifying that effort. And uh, so it was uh, uh, just wonderful to, you know, I learned so much and uh, uh, it was just an intersect of uh, science, technology uh, and uh, ecology and, and the environment. Yeah. Thanks again for calling in. Thanks for sharing that. I really eloquent uh, articulation of what I'm sure resonates with you, Tyler, of what you're trying to do there at the Center for Limnology. Yes, those... uh... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're you're on, Tyler. Oh, okay. Uh, Yes, those those trips out to the lake uh, during the winter months still still do occur. Um, And yeah, it is it is a really beautiful resource. And and I I mentioned the the long term ecological research program uh, earlier uh, in this this program. But indeed, uh, Lake Mendota is the most studied lake in the world. So we have been uh, thinking thinking about it as a community for a long time. And, you know, North American limnology really started here at the University of Wisconsin. Um, and so it's good that we're, we're sort of keeping up the uh, this this tradition. And as uh, Akar mentioned, you know, setting out lots of buoys and sensors is obviously a lot easier to do uh, in the summer. But in the winter, after it's a little more uh, requires a little more preparation, as things freeze and it's it's difficult. But we're working a lot on sensor technology and and thinking about those um, those aspects of setting out a sensor in the ice or on the ice, but then having a system where when that ice breaks, you can fall into the water safely without um, dunking in or keeping sensors in water as the actual water below the ice is usually warmer than the surface where usually ranges from zero to four degrees Celsius or 32 to 39 degrees Fahrenheit. And the water on the bottom of the lake is actually warmer than it is at the surface because the surface is frozen. You know, that, that caller brought up something too, that uh, reminded me one of my favorite things about limnology and Tyler, I'll let you share it. There's a, they have a buoy that sits out in the lake in the summer and it is awesome. You can draw, you can see it if you have binoculars and you get a boat near it, but the name of the buoy is, David Bowie, our, <laughs> uh, our fearless sensor. Yeah. And so, so I had heard at one point too, that the original software that the, that the graduate student wrote for it was called the Ziggy Stardust software, which would have been David Bowie's uh, alter ego. But, but it, the joking aside, it, it's, it's a really cool piece of equipment that limnology um, 
uh, puts in the water each year. And then, so Clean Lakes Alliance, we have um, a, a network of volunteer monitors around all five lakes that populate um, an, a free app called Lake Forecast. And we run it from uh, Memorial Day to Labor Day. And these volunteers go out with a turbidity tube, which is just a, a meter long tube. And it has a secchi disc, which we talked about on the bottom. And so they'll take a, take a dip of water and then bleed that water out and look down when they can see that secchi disc. They're going to get what, what uh, clarity is uh, at that area uh, where they're sampling. Um, it's the beaches and, and around 70 points, 70 to 80 points run all five lakes. And the data from uh, David Bowie is tied into too. So there's surface ratings, I think one meter down. And it's just a great tool for folks that want to use the lakes because our lakes are really truly dynamic and so you may be at the union or somewhere over on this side of lake mendota and there may be a cyanobacteria bloom and you think gosh all the lakes are terrible but over on the north end at uh governor nelson it could be great or it could be fine over on monona or wabisa or Giganza. and this free app really allows you to sort of dial in and see what the temperature is what the clarity is um when the last reading was took and and it's a it's a truly unique tool using very um, analog rudimentary tools, but providing uh, a great data, a uh, great amount of data for the community. What's the name of that app again, Adam, and how do people access it? Lake Forecast, and it's free both in the Android and the Apple Store. And if you were to download it today, you would get nothing because nobody, if you can see it, you can see the points sure. that we collected, but clearly we're not taking readings in the middle of January. And so our monitors do it, um, take the readings between Memorial Day and Labor Day at least twice weekly. And so one of the things that that we found, and, and um, Tyler can probably also speak to this a little bit more, is before this, a lot of um, lake data was taken center of lake. And, 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 and most of us use the lake, not at the center of the lake. And so, so getting that data um, sort of at the near shore where more people are using the lake was, was sort of helpful to sort of tell the story. And then, you know, we, sh we, we compile this data every year and then share that with the Center for Limnology and, and, and hopefully are creating a little bit more of a, of, a, of a roadmap of what things are, what's happening at the shore over an extended period of time. And, and then when the, when the smart folks at CFL are, are doing their research, it can maybe see, you know, how things like uh, zebra mussels are affecting our lake or um, other invasives and, and sort of what that's doing. Um, so that's like the science end of it, but the, but the not science end of it, it's just a great tool for people who want to use the lakes and pick the best spot on that day where they can go. Go ahead, Tyler. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, it definitely, we are thinking a lot more about um, the spatial extent of our lakes and not just the the deep hole uh, in the center of Mendota, Minota, but thinking of those near shore areas. And we've, we've definitely learned that they are super important to uh, how the lake ticks uh, in the summer and, and beyond as well. Listening to you both talk has been uh, fascinating in a sense. It's gotten me thinking about this, um, what sounds somewhat like a unique relationship between a scientific institution and a nonprofit organization that is both doing advocacy, but also in many ways, you're a storytelling organization, the Clean Lake Alliance, Clean Lakes Alliance, that you're, you're trying to create community around the lakes through um, people's experience of them, but also by having a shared understanding of them, which is what a story does, right? And uh, it's it's really a wonderful testament to to the ways that science and storytelling can work off of each other. I think it's important to to point out that you know the public private partnerships are are kind of what are going to make the world uh, tick and, and go forward. And, and we have this great relationship with the Center for Limnology, and we're trying to help tell that story. We have great relationships with. Um, city and municipal governments, county government, as well as other nonprofits around the lake. So there's there's friends groups that are doing great things that friends of Stark Weather Creek and the friends of Lake Wingra and that, you know, there, there's a bunch of different friends groups. And so I think one of the interesting things about our community board is it's made up of um, some folks in government, it's made up with some folks in business, and then it's made up with some folks in nonprofit. And so we get 40 people together in a room who all kind of have a common goal and they may have... Um, they may live in different spots. They may have different political views. But I think the one good thing about Madison is everybody is able to set most of that aside to focus on the lakes. And, and that truly has been been a, a very rewarding thing going forward is that, you know, um, you know, there's been a number of studies that have kind of shown what we would have to do to achieve clear water. And, and everybody is is potentially willing to make that spend. How do we get to it is, is step two. But but 
everybody's willing to, to move forward on that. And, and I think having a nonprofit um, in this area that's able to sort of um, the straw that stirs the drink or brings folks together is helpful and, and, and very, um, uh, very happy that the Center for Limnology is here. The fact that, you know, <laughs> essentially limnology was invented at the University of Wisconsin and we have the most studied lake in the world here. How lucky are we as a community to have that resource right here? Absolutely. I want to remind folks that you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Adam Sodderston from the Clean Lakes Alliance and Tyler Butts, postdoctoral researcher at the UW-Madison Center for Limnology. We're talking about the Ahara Lakes and in particular the Ahara Lakes in winter. There's still time to give us a call before the top of the hour at 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you'd like to join the conversation. And we'll return to some of those issues that you all have meant brought up uh, along the way here in terms of issues facing the lakes and how the community is addressing them. But uh, before we do that, uh, we have another caller on the line, Dave, uh, who is a former limnology employee and has a question for you all. Uh, welcome to a public affair, Dave. Yeah, I am a past facilities and equipment manager at Limnology, and when I retired, we, they were just really starting to get interested in trying to figure out ways of measuring water quality and other aspects of it during ice out, which is you know a time when you can't get on the ice but you can't get a boat out there to do measuring either. And I was curious where they were at at this point in time. Thanks for the question, Dave. Really interesting one. Uh, Tyler, we'll go to you. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And it, like, like Dave mentioned, it's a very tricky uh, issue because it's, it's really not safe to get, you know, people out there at those shoulder, we call the shoulder seasons where the ice is really not safe. You can't get a boat out there because there's ice cover, but you can't walk out on the ice because it's, um, would be pretty dangerous. Um, and so we we have been working um, on some of these uh, designing and building our own sensors where we can set up an apparatus that is taking data. It sits on the ice and there's this, these sort of like little pontoon um, contraptions beneath the, the sensor base. And so when the, during that shoulder season, when it, it can then drop into the water safely um, and keep taking those measurements or um, we're doing a lot of just leaving sensors out in the water um, and setting it below the uh, below the ice and leaving them in the water over winter as well, trying to get better at that aspect. Um, and to, to kind of continue to build this record over those shoulder seasons, which are really important biologically and ecologically, um, but it's it's difficult to get data on them as as Dave mentioned but we are we're making progress on improving our capability to sample those those time periods sounds like a technological challenge in part yeah yeah um great thanks for the question again Dave and we have another caller Fawn is on the line and she has a comment about camping on the ice welcome to a public affair Fawn yeah. Hi. Um, I just want to say, mention, this is not scientific, but it's anecdotal about the changes that I've seen <clears throat> since I've lived in Madison. I moved here in 1999, and pretty soon thereafter, I became acquainted with a couple named Jake, I think. I forgot his last name, and I forgot his fiance's name, but they, he was from a Scandinavian background. He was all about winter activities. He and a group of friends would, every year, they would go out on Lake Monona and and spend a weekend there. He would, They would pitch a shelter and light fires there and cook on the ice. And I was just amazed that they could light, have a fire. I don't think they had a, I don't know if the fire was sitting directly on the ice. It was in a stove, I think, I believe. But the fact that it was sitting on the ice and they were putting fire on the ice and they had no fear that they would go through or that there would, you know, anything would happen to them overnight, over two nights. I don't think any, I don't know of anyone who's doing that these days. And also in those days, they, people started up a Kites on Ice Festival. I know you have the Frozen Assets Festival, which must be a nice echo of that. But the Kites on Ice happened in February on either Lake Men Monona or Lake Mendota. And, um, and it, people from all over the globe would fly these elaborate, elaborate kites outside. And it was just a wonderful three-day festival. And you can't do that reliably anymore, at least not in February. So I'm just saying there are things like, like reminiscing about those things where the ice was more reliable, thicker, and longer-lasting than it is today. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing those powerful memories, um, Fawn. And uh, I think Adam has has some responses to that. Yeah, so the, the Kites on Ice was such a fantastic event. And I think they were on Lake Monona, if I'm correct. Um, so some of the folks that fly the kites at Frozen Assets are from that old festival. And so our Kites Over Mendota, we work with the Wisconsin Kiters Club, and they have these huge, huge show kites. They have stunt kites that will they can fly down and, and stop right and, and tip a person's cap off. Um, and then this is really exciting. Last year, we got um, these LED kites that they fly at night. So they'll fly down Friday the 2nd and Saturday the 3rd from dusk until about 9 or 10 at night. And they're these huge glow kites that are really neat to see um, sort of dancing over the water. So, so the kites are still here. So come down to Frozen Assets. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the second, third, and fourth, you will see really amazing kites. Thanks to the Wisconsin Kiters Club. And I was kind of thinking about the the fire too. And I I went to college here at UW and lived on the lake, and we would go out and have fires. And then you know the the part of it is is it's responsible cleanup after the fire. Um, it's very important because that stuff will fall in the lake and it's not great. But you know you think of the ice, and and right now we're you know seven-ish inches. But last year I think at this time. We were at like 15 and a couple of years ago, we were at 20 something. And, and that's that's thicker than concrete and a highway that's thicker than concrete and a parking structure. And so you just try to almost visualize how thick that is. And even if you start a fire on top of the ice, it's just not going to go through 20 inches of ice. Um, and so that is another one of those magical things that we get to do here in the Midwest and, and trying to explain that to somebody from. Uh, who grew up maybe in California or Florida or somewhere where they don't have ice, it's 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 hard to understand that you can burn on top of frozen water and still be okay. <laughs> yeah, and a pretty magical experience when you're out on a frozen body of water around a fire, right? Uh, pretty pretty unique. Um, thank you again, Fawn, for sharing that. Um, we have uh, about seven minutes left here, and I want to return to some of those um, kind of bigger ecological, cultural issues that the lakes are facing that I know you're both invested in and working on. Um, you mentioned leaves earlier on. Adam is a seasonal issue that um, people can be involved in to help address uh, phosphorus pollution in the lakes. Um, salt is on people's minds at this time of year, uh, particularly over the last week or so. I'm sure all of us have heard people grumbling about the state of the roads around Madison. And Madison is making, and I applaud, a concerted effort to reduce salt use right? Yes. Um, because that mostly all goes right into those lakes, right? Yeah, um, and, but and let's let's talk about salt a little bit and, and what you both know and are advocating for these days. So, so less is more, just like most things in life, less is more. Um, one of the things that uh, our friends at SaltWise Wisconsin will tell you is that the average suburban driveway, so just take and put in the average suburban driveway, one coffee cup of salt is enough for the whole driveway. And so when you see that clumping, it's not doing anything. Like more is not going to do it. The whole idea is you scatter the salt on the ice. It's going to eat down. And then you come back with the shovel or, or, or the chipper and, and pick it up. And if you want to take it one step further, you can collect that salt and reuse it again and, and really keep it from, from making its way uh, into our lakes. Um, the other thing about salt is it, it's not going to work in the sub frigid, you know, these Hoth-like conditions we had the last right. few days. It's not going to work. Yeah, below 15 degrees, uh, salt really isn't effective. And you know, it is it is a balance, uh, as as we're all saying. And I'll just give a quick plug. Uh, I uh, Wisconsin Saltwise is hosting a winter salt awareness this week. Um, they're doing some daily live streams uh, talking about salt and our freshwater resources. Um, there'll be folks that, from the University of Wisconsin Madison, I believe, uh, talking with uh, other folks there. But yeah, it's. Uh, like we're saying, you know, doesn't work that effectively under 15 degrees, uh, using sand when possible. Uh, and, you know, take that, that one cup is about to treat about a 20 foot driveway or like 10 or so sidewalk squares. When salt's really clumped up, it's not effective. It has to be really, you know, spread out uh, to work. It's interesting how, you know, obviously the salinity is affects the lakes and is affecting our groundwater. And I know it's affecting plant life and that affects the plant life. It affects the fish. So, the, the, you know, you, you really start to affect the ecosystem when you oversalt. However, you know, we, we do live in an area where we can't be smashing our cars into each other. So there is there's there's a safety trade off 
mm -hmm. um, that we have to do. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you, you'll notice the highway division now a lot more is um, putting a brine down. So ahead of storms, they're putting a brine of a, a saltwater mix that's, that's potentially limiting the amount of ice that's going to build up. And, and if you, you can Google it, I can't think of the exact recipes now, but I've done it on my own driveway when I know there's going to be an ice storm. You mix up a small amount of salt with some water and you can treat your driveway and it truly does make a difference. It's not this huge amount of salt that you're dumping on. It's a much smaller amount that is sort of a pre-treatment. If you can get out there and do it, it, it really will help. Uh, Tyler, can you just give us a little snapshot of what we know about the impacts of salt in the Yahara Lakes? Yeah, so, I mean, our surface water, groundwater, and soil have been absorbing virtually all of the salt spread in the state for more than six decades. So it is it is an issue, um, and we are seeing increasing um, salinity in our water bodies. And just to put a point to it, um, this is a fact from Wisconsin SaltWise, it only takes one teaspoon of salt to pollute five gallons of water to a level that's toxic for freshwater ecosystems. So it doesn't take a lot to um, have a big impact on the water. And so just doing some of those small things that we mentioned of, you know, not applying when the temperature is below 15, um, using salt when able, um, and when you're using salt, you know, spreading it out over 10 sidewalk squares or one driveway with a, which is a cup of salt uh, can do a lot to help as prevention is the most cost-effective solution to helping out with um, some of that salt spread. But it is also a balance. Like we can't, um, we do live in a state where, you know, sometimes salt is necessary. So We are just about at the end of our hour. So many other uh, challenges and positive news about uh, the lakes that we, we could talk about, but I wanted to spend the last few minutes there talking about that seasonal issue of salt in particular. Um, but uh, in our last couple of minutes here, Adam, tell us uh, a little bit more about ways the public can get involved in the work of Clean Lakes Alliance or other efforts to improve water quality in the lakes. Well, I think coming to our monthly science talks, which is our Clean Lakes 101 Science Cafe, is a great way for folks just to dive deep into each little issue. Um, and they're really exciting and they're put on usually by an expert. Um, attending one of our other events is a great way just to get involved in, in your you know, registration fee either or participation fee for our 5K, um, which is coming up at the festival. I haven't even mentioned that. God willing, we get enough ice here. It is the only 5K in North America that is held entirely on a frozen lake. And so it is a very unique experience uh, if we can get out there and do it. So that's a, a great way we're raising money to support um, programs and projects and advocacy. In the summer, we have a bike ride that goes all the way around Lake Monona. It follows the official lake loop. It is Loop the Lake. And again, another great way to... Um, get near the lake and then registration fees help us um, commit to projects uh, and give out grants. We've given out about $1.4 million in grants over the last uh, 13 years. And those are projects that are just staying local and are directly affecting the lake. So any way people want to get involved, cleanlakesalliance.org is a great way to find out more information or following us on uh, Facebook and Instagram. We're very uh, active on the socials um, and, and respond to anybody that has a question there. So hit us up on those and, and we'll be sure to get back to you right away. That's Adam Soderston, Marketing and Communications Director of the Clean Lakes Alliance. Thanks so much for joining us today, Adam. Thank you. And we've also been joined by Tyler Butts, postdoctoral researcher at the UW-Madison Center for Limnology. Thanks again, Tyler, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd also like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, news director Shali Pittman, and receptionist Amy Lutzke. I am your host, Douglas Haynes. You've been listening to A Public Affair here on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. If you enjoyed the program today, please share the online link in our archive or wherever you find your podcasts. And stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. Today, Coast Cole Erickson talks with Madison poet Heather Swan.